The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call them now. Leave a message. They will return your call at 905-529-7165. And check out the website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. All one word. There you can ask a question via the listener inquiry button or listen to old archive shows. Good morning, gentlemen. Good to see you all. Good morning. Good morning. Hi, everybody. Are you feeling better that there's a vaccine in the world today? The UK announcing this week that uh, they've uh, inoculated the first person. How does that change things? Yes, I heard it was a, was it a 90-year-old woman, I believe. Yeah, 90-year-old woman, and then followed by a gentleman whose name was William Shakespeare. No way. That's true. <laughs> Very wow. good. Well, you know what? Uh, it's, uh, it's great news. This is you know, this is predictable. They talked about it, but it's nice to actually see it happen. And it was great to see going back on Tuesday that this uh, took place. And the markets really already put this into the markets. You know, they're always trying to predict six months to over a year in advance. And so they've already predicted, okay, there will be a vaccine. They will open the economy and the stock market will reflect that. So it's already kind of built in or priced in. It's been expected. But Mm -hmm. it is nice to see this actually take place. Yeah, this has been a, um, I think, from a Canadian perspective, too, uh, you know, we're obviously anxious to find out when that's going to start. And at the same time, um, I know there's been a lot of talk about how do we get back to being able to produce our own vaccine uh, right here in Canada? And what can the what can the government do to incentivize? And there was move along. Uh, there was movement along that way actually um, under um, Harper, where he um, they took away uh, <clears throat> or they introduced, I guess, some of the um, uh, the the rights to uh, being able to keep your uh, pr- um, keep those vaccines as your own. Um, for your own uh, development and your own profit, whereas before there was a certain timeline where it had to become public and you could no longer profit from it. So they've expanded that. So that's opened up some of the research here in Canada. And the next thing is being able to actually create a vaccine here, right here on our own on our own premises. And, and even more so right here uh, down the street from us in Hamilton, where we have the you know, some, one of the best universities, some of the best healthcare facilities and innovation center just down the street. And I wouldn't be shocked to have a lot more of those type of uh, things being developed right here in our great city. That, that would be great, wouldn't it? Yeah. It, sure. It'll be interesting to see what we learn from this coming out and, and how it changes virtually every facet of life uh, moving forward. That being said, as and here I'm segueing into your next topic, uh, or into your first topic, uh, we've learned a lot over the last uh, 25 years, looking backwards, hoping, hoping to look a bit more or learn a bit more uh, from COVID as we move forward, but we've learned a lot over the last 25 years as well. Well, this was, I, I came across an article that was written by a journalist who, um, uh, who actually entered into a journalism in the financial industry 25 years ago. And as they were thinking back 25 years ago and trying to really understand what is, what's the importance of money and, and, and what have we learned over the last 25 years after, in, in his own experience, speaking with professional financial planners, successful brokers, uh, money managers, etc., and sort of garnered that into a top 10 list of the things that, that we can still use today going forward. And really the, the importance of money was really about 
you know, as he put it, less about affording the newest iPhone or measuring your career success, but it tends to have a lot more to do with the core of being human, our freedom, our ego, our stress, and our relationships. And, um, and how we use money and think about it, not just accumulating it, can really determine the happiness that we have. And, and you know, we've got roughly 30,000 days that we're privileged to be alive. So how we use those and count them down is, is an important factor for sure. And one of the big things, think back 25 years ago, uh, 1995, the jury said that O.J. Simpson was not guilty, and hmm. Toy Story came out and was playing in the theaters. So it's funny, those don't seem that far back, but anyway, there they are, 25 years ago. And, well, that's um, the interesting. I know we're going back 25 years ago, but it was just this past week, 40 years ago this past week, it was John Lennon passed away or getting shot. That's when he was shot, yeah. And that was 40 years ago, and, and I think we all remember... 40 years back again we're all in that age group and it's and so 25 years ago it doesn't even seem that long anymore yeah, exactly who's john well, you know, when you think about who's that, john lennon i don't even know who that is who's john lennon can you guys explain yeah, yeah. that to me I, I i think my dad used to listen to him no i'm sorry go ahead well you think back 25 years ago and if you were graduating with a business degree or certainly in finance or something you think you'd know enough about how the basics of finances work but um you know, personal finance was confusing back then. And I don't know whether it's on purpose, but obviously it, it's still complex or maybe more complex today. And um, so if you think about some of the experiences, whether it was the dot-com bubble, the housing bubble of 2008, and, of course, the pandemic that we're, that we're dealing with now, uh, let's just get into some of the things that we've learned. And number one is just starting off on that pandemic uh, thought process is, number one, is that it will rain. And, you know, if COVID's taught us uh, anything, is that bad stuff happens. It doesn't matter who you are. That rainy day fund is really fundamental to keep us financially safer in case of unexpected large expense, a job loss, uh, a globe-ravaging virus, for example. And, um, you know, the, the, the reality is, is that, you know, people get sick, uh, people die, breadwinners die, cars crash. Having that, uh, that short-term reserve or having the right insurance to keep you from financial ruin is so important as a basic, basic step. So I think is a challenge that, you know, if you're finding it very difficult to build up that short-term reserve, again, a goal for 2021, just start small. 500 bucks is a great place to start and then plan to try and build on it as you, uh, over the next six months, you know, by increasing it. And the idea would be to get to a three-month or six-month living expenses squirreled away into a short-term account. Number two, sort of a learning insight was uh, that marketing matters. And uh, marketing matters. And what we mean by marketing matters is that, you know, advertising existed 25 years ago. But the reality is, is that it wasn't on a computer. It wasn't on a, in your pocket on a phone that you look at 100 times a day. It was maybe in newspapers and maybe on TV. And, of course, it was on radio. But, um, you know, now they can not only just target you as a segment, they can target you individually on your phone, the exact things that you're looking at. And so the temptation has never been greater, thanks to that evolution of technology and social media, to, uh, to be marketed to and to buy stuff. So... Be aware that marketing matters, and more than ever, we're, uh, we're inundated with that, um, that temptation. Number three is score a goal. And what we mean by score to, scoring a goal, I guess, is that the antidote of that sort of poison of constant marketing is having a reason to say no. 
And, and the best way to say no is through establishing financial goals. And if you've established financial goals, it just makes it easier. And I'm talking about necessarily like far off goals, like saving for retirement, which is obviously something that's there in the background, but short-term stuff. Like remember when we used to travel and you'd think about dreaming, saving up for a trip to Bahamas or something like that. That's the kind of thing we're thinking about. Keep those short-term goals in front of you helps you put off those other things that are going to tempt you in the short term as well. Uh, Number four is where do goals live? And you think about your financial goals, but if you were to help sort of set up your own goals, the suggestion is take a look at your calendar and take a look at your bank statements because where you spend your time on your calendar is basically where your money is and where you spend your money is who you are. So, you know, time and money are what you can change to become who you want to be. So if you want to focus more on building um, a short-term reserve, you can maybe identify some areas where you can cut back there. But, you know, things cost money, right? So if you're spending money on hobbies, I have one client who likes to collect antiques, and antiques can be a bargain or they can be expensive. So suddenly looking at that budget, they had to realize that, well, I can't just get every antique that I love. I've I've got to put a limit on it, and by at least drilling down to see how much they were spending in that area gave them some insight. Number five was budgeting is overrated. And, uh, you know, um, I always came from the perspective that if you're saving enough and you have the right, the goals are in place and you're on track to reach those goals, then whatever's left over is available for you to spend and enjoy. But um, I think it's important to examine you got to examine your past spending no matter what. There's a lot of financial websites and apps out there that can help you do that, but money leaks are obvious. So I just took the time and I thought, I'm going to do this myself quickly. And so I just went through, and I, I keep track, and Don and I have talked about this many a times, how we keep track of where money is going, and et cetera. But, um, so I drilled down to see where year-to-date some of the categories that we've spent money on, and one I picked in uh, up was dining. So I have this category called dining, which is basically, could be takeout, it could be, going out for dinner, it could be anything along with basically eating food that's not prepared here at home. And um, so we have spent $6,600 on dining year to date, so 550 a month. There were a couple of big ones in there, some big celebrations, but um, basically, and then I went a little further and I found out that I spent 1100 bucks at our favorite place, Tim Hortons, so roughly $22.91 a week or $3.27 a day. So we know what I've been doing. <laughs> wow. So how many coffee makers could you buy for that, Andy? <laughs> I know, exactly. So you know what? It just reminded me that um, it, that there is that sort of leakage. You can see where things are going. So it's important to review it and categorize it and understand because the obvious things will sort of jump out at you. Um, number six is the, the title, The Ledger Has Two Sides. And what the ledger is referring to is that, you know, you have money coming in, and you have money going out. And, you know, whatever's left over at the end of the day, I mean, the rest is just details in between. But, uh, you know, it's important to know some of those details. And, um, you know, without a budget, if you don't want to have a budget, let's say you could say a target is I'm going to save 10%. So if you made $80,000 this year, if you're on track, you can take a look at your T4, you can take a look at your year-to-date pay statement. And let's say you want to save eight grand. Well, and it turns out, well, maybe you've already saved five thousand through your group RSP plan or something like that. So you only need to save another three. So then you're down to two hundred and fifty a month. So just keeping a track of that makes a lot of sense. 
And time for money is a fail. Time for money is a fail. And what we mean by that is you just simply can't get ahead by trading off more time for more money at a job. You can't just work more and get ahead. You've got to make sure your money's working for you. And what I mean by that is you don't want money sitting earning minuscule bank interest. You've got to get that money working for you is key. Um, credit where credit is due is number eight. And basically what we're saying is credit scores didn't exist. You couldn't access them 25 years ago. It took forever. And at the end of the day, uh, poor credit means that you might not be able to get a good loan or you may not be able to get a job or you might not even get an account at the electric company. So i got two more I want to cover as we finish off. We'll wrap up. We'll come back. I'll, I'll get you number nine and number ten. Planning you, We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister, Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call now. Leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165. Quick break here. We're coming back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call them now. Leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165 and check out the website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. Uh, Andy, you were talking about, or first Don, uh, we're going to talk about uh, tax planning and a checklist coming up. But first, uh, Andy, you wanted to finish a couple of points here on things that we've learned over the last 25 years. Yeah, and this was garnered from a, a financial journalist who um, had talked to experts for the last 25 years and sort of summarized his thoughts. And uh, we talked about the first aid, and number nine was entitled Ride to Prosperity. And what ride here we're talking about is your vehicle. And he says, you know, if, if you're going to be vigilant about one purchase in your life, make it your next car. And uh, he said new cars, and especially the luxury brands, uh, you know, they are just, he calls them wealth repellent. <laughs> and, and the reason they're wealth repellent, except for all about the richest of us, is that, uh, you know, new high, there's, uh, new car prices are high and there's a lot of wicked depreciation, of course, not to mention interest if you're financing it. So buying a used car is better advice now than ever, and particularly since 1995, as uh, today's cars are... You know, they used to be someone else's problem, but the new, but the used cars today are pretty reliable and much more dependable. And finally, number 10, it's unfair. And, um, you know, as you said, money smarts are, are insufficient to overcome some financial woes, and we're dealing with that. Many people do stagnant wages, maybe health care costs, increased costs of housing, just to name a few. And obviously, some careers don't pay as much as others, uh, even though they require maybe similar skills. So that leads to different money problems and different opportunities for different people. So although economics, economic inequities exist, but basically it means that if you've got more money, you, you can be a little sloppier. But if you've got less money and the margins are tighter, it forces you to make better decisions. And those are the folks that are probably the best to talk to about budgeting. But I'll just set out a goal for everybody for 2021. You know, if you're getting a tax refund, let's start right there. Save 50%, at least 50%. So put that as a target. And uh, number two, you know, think about if your mortgage is being paid off or you've paid off debt, take that cash flow and put it back into your plan in terms of long-term savings. And that's it. Very good. Well, that's a great, uh, a great start, and that's a great uh, way to... Not only, you know, you learn from the past. So the last 25 years is really, okay, it's a spring for, springboard into the future. And everybody, you know, no matter how old you are, I had a call last week 
of somebody saying, is, is it okay my 16-year-old son becomes a client? And we can invest for a minor. And I always get kind of excited about <laughs> that because it, it, it sets great habits. And I had one client, my youngest client ever was 14 years old. Now, that gentleman now is about, well, he's 30 years now, so he's about 44 now. And, you know, he went from a 14-year-old wanting to save $50 a month from his paper route, and now here he is at 44, mortgage paid off, very great saver, has two kids of his own, and, and really follows his own, the advice over all those years. So it really created great habits. And it comes to money management, it all comes down to a great habit. And whether you start at 14 or, or 44, whatever your age is, it's a great time to start those new habits. And, you know, uh, as far as we're concerned, when we're looking at the past, there always it, there's reasons why they worked. And, you know, true and tried ways work. And if you were, it's never too late to learn. So uh, that, in, that taking place, we still have a little bit left of 2020. Now, I know some people are saying, please, let's just move on to 2021. 2020's enough. <laughs> exactly. we, we're finished with this year. Well, not so quick. We got some last-minute tax planning tips. And if, any, if there's any chance to grab a pen and write down what, uh, what is appropriate for your situation, it might be a good idea right now. And let's start with, now, first of all, thinking about tax planning, you know, a lot of financial planners, and I put that in quotation marks, don't often talk about tax planning. They're always talking about investment planning. And that is really, that's part of the job. And I know Andy and I have talked about this many times. There's a big difference from a financial planner and an investment advisor. Investment advisor is part of what we do. But there's a lot of other things we do, such as tax planning, which we're going to talk about, estate planning, insurance planning, cash flow management, and a lot of the things Andy was just talking about in his, the top 10 tips there. But going further... As far as the tax planning checklist goes, let's start with the first one, is saving for retirement with RSPs. So the first step is you may want to get online as far as um, the you know, Revenue Canada and CRA, Canadian Revenue Agency, and so that way you can always know what your notice of assessment is and what your RSP room is. So that's the starting point. I know they will mail it to you, but it always seems that those those notice of assessments go missing somehow, and then you're checking out a tax return. So if you are online, it's great. We can always access that and find out how much RSP room do you have. Now, we, we've seen people with literally over $200,000 of RSP room, and it just means that over their working life, they weren't making contributions and likely didn't have a plan to make so, and, and it may not have made sense because maybe their incomes were too low, but likely it's because they weren't forced to save. So starting point, find out what your RSP room. Next, does it make sense to contribute based on your income now? And we're going to get to that in a second. Or should you put this into your RSP or into a spousal RSP? Now, the difference between those two, one is you, you get the tax deduction, regardless if you put it in your own RSP or whether you put it into a spousal RSP. The difference is on the way out. When you start to withdraw the money from the RSPs, if it's in your name, you pay the tax. If it's in your spouse's name, he or she pays the tax. And that could be a great way to income split down the road. And we'll touch on that even more so later on in, when, on in terms of a RIF and who pays the tax at that point too. So the next thing is really you need to look at what your tax bracket is. 
And I'm going to just generalize here. If your income is between $20,000 and $45,000, you're in a 20% tax bracket. If it's between $48,000 and $79,000, you're in a 29.65% bracket, or let's call that a 30% bracket. $97,000 to $150,000, you're in a 43.41% bracket. $150,000 to $214,000, you're in a 48% bracket. And anything over $220,000, a 53.53% tax bracket. So RSPs are a deduction off whatever bracket you're in. And only the amount over that bracket is taxed at that. So an example, if you made, and you're lucky enough to make 225000 only the 5000 over that amount would be taxed at 53.53. Therefore, if you put 5000 into an RSP, that 5000 would save you 53.53% in terms of tax savings. So the first key point is, does it make sense to put money into your RSP now, or should you delay until you're into a higher bracket? Now, if you don't foresee yourself getting into a higher bracket in any time in the near future, then I would definitely recommend putting the money into the RSP now. Uh, another thing as far as RSPs go, if you are 71 this year, and, and you're still working, and it makes sense to use your RSPs, uh, to, to um, contribute to an RSP again in, at the age of 71, if it's going into your own RSP, you have until December 31st of this year. Normally, it's the limit is March 1st of 2021 for the RSP contributions for the previous year, except for the year you turn 71. So if you're 71 this year, get that RSP if it makes sense for you. And again, this is where the tax bracket management comes into place. Don't simply get an RSP because you have the RSP room. This is where you need a financial advisor or financial planner and make sure you're doing the right things. It really comes down to you should add RSPs, you should add to your RSP if you feel you're going to be in a lower bracket or the same bracket when you retire. Now, the only caveat to that is RSPs are great for savings. And so a lot of times I'll say, you know, they're very sticky. So even somebody is often in a lower bracket if they have a hard time saving, which most people do, it does make sense just to simply contribute. It forces them to save. It may not be the best tax situation, but you know what? Saving tax comes second to saving money. Saving money is far more important. And get that. And I, I've, I've seen a lot of people save a lot of money in RSPs only because it was forced upon them. Probably the best example is pension funds. When people are, uh, for example, a, a teacher just starting out may make less than 50000 a year and be in the lowest bracket. But the, they're taking the funds off their pay every month so that they're able to have a, a, a very good retirement, say, at the age of 60 or even less. And the same thing happens with RSPs. It's a forced savings. But again, there's other saving avenues to go. It doesn't have to be RSPs. So the other side of it is if you did, let's say you did have $100,000 of RSP room, which a lot of people do, and you happen to get a bit of a windfall, some people will say, well, I'll just put the whole 100000 in my RSP. Not a terrible idea, because you can do that, because you have the room. But you can then say, okay, well, my income is, let's say it's about uh, 137000 a year. Well, that means you're in that 43% bracket. What you may want to do is put 40000 claim 40000 one year, 40000 the next year, and 20000 the third year, and that way all your tax savings is at that 43.41% bracket. You can put all the money into the RSP. You don't have to claim it in the year you put it in. 
you can carry it forward as long as you want. So a lot of people don't know that. And it was just simply because they put it into the RSP, they claim it that year. Not what I'd recommend. And this is where you need to be speaking to whoever's preparing your income tax return, if it's not you, to make sure they simply don't claim it. Because if they have the slips, quite often they'll simply just claim it because they're just trying to bring your, you know, save you as much tax as possible, not looking at the bigger picture of spreading it over a few years. The other idea of um, using an RSP, and in retirement no less, is if you are, say, over the income of 79000 and you have RSP room, well, you may actually want to make an RSP contribution. If you're 65, collecting your old age security. So let's say you're making 81000 You could actually put 2000 into your RSP, bring you back down to 79000 and that way you don't get any old age security clawback. And because the clawback level for 2020 is $79,054. So again, trying to get your net income to $79,054 is something that is a great tax planning strategy. And RSP still may be the answer. Not always the answer, but it's one way. And the last one here as far as RSP planning goes, if you're still working past the age 71, and you're fortunate enough that your spouse is under the age of 71, you can actually contribute to their RSP in terms of a spousal RSP. So if you, and this actually happens quite often in second marriages, but uh, even if your first marriage, regardless, if, let's say your spouse is 65 and you're now 72, well, you can still add for another six years to a spousal RSP. Even the fact now you would be 78, you can add to a spousal RSP because he or she is under the age of 72. So it may make sense, but this is, again, one of those strategies a lot of people aren't aware of. And to be quite frank, it's hard to find the RSP room because quite often they don't even keep track of it once you get past the age of 71. So you have to kind of keep track of that yourself. So now that we said, okay, what about here's the RSP planning as far as contributions. What about the RSP planning on withdrawing money from the RSP? And this is actually what I know Andy and I are doing a lot of right now because we're getting close to that December 31st year end. We start using those tax brackets in reverse. We do know that RSPs are a tax deferral, and you have to pay tax on these sometimes. And the worst case scenario is if you die, you have a million dollars, the final death of you and your spouse, and anything over $220,000 would be taxed at 53.53%. You know to me, that's almost, it should be illegal that the government gets more than you get. And this is what happens with RSPs. More than half your RSPs would end up going to the government if you had that much in RSP. So the key here is start thinking about withdrawing your RSPs while you're in lower brackets. So if you have a significant amount of money in RSPs, one thought is to try to get both your incomes up to that OAS clawback limit, which would be 79000 And if you did that, you, you and your spouse would get both get your OAS, and you'd be paying tax at, at very most a 30% bracket, a lot better than you know, leaving it to your kids and half of it going to the government before your kids got it. So this is really using the brackets in reverse. See um, how much tax do you want to pay, because you've got to pay tax sometime. You know, one thing when you're accumulating your wealth, you say, okay, how much tax can I save? This is the other end of the scale. Now we're going to be using the RSPs. Let's, let's manage the income levels using RSPs and try to get these out at the lowest tax brackets going forward. So this OAS clawback strategy 
is extremely important. Another way of doing this is with OAS clawback is if you've got a big capital gain, and this is one a lot of people are doing, and they accumulate a lot of money in, say, one stock, and they don't want to do anything with it because they're going to lose their old age security. It makes no sense, though, to hold one stock, particularly you're way too much money in one company, very under-diversified, taking on a lot of risk, but you don't want to lose your old age security. You can do this so that you just lose your OAS once. Go through it once, lose the OAS for one year, and then going the following year, you'd get it all back again. The worst thing that you could actually do is lose your OAS or part of your OAS every single year. And this is what happens with a lot of people. Is they own some, a lot of individual stocks that pay a lot of dividends. And these dividends actually are hurting you. So creating and rebalancing your portfolio so that you can lower your dividend income and use what we call T-series so you can get your own capital paid back, pay no tax, because what happens with dividends, they gross it up by 38%. So let's, for example, you got $10,000 of dividends. Right, what they show on your net income, they add $3,800 to that. So now they show 13800 to your income. Well, that extra 3800 isn't even real money. That's just a gross-up. It's a fictitious number that they gross up. Well, it, it wasn't meant to lose OAS because this came out way before the OAS clawback was invented. However, the reality is that $3,800 would cost you $570 of your old age security. So... We need to have new strategies, and that would be more of the investment plan. But OAS clawback strategies, these are all part of the, the tax planning tips that you really should utilize right now before December 31st. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call now. Leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165 and check out the website at andyanddon.com. Quick break here. We're coming back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Check out their website, andyanddon.com, or you can call now and leave a message at 905-529-7165. Don, you were talking about a tax planning checklist. Yes, and I... I kind of only got through a couple of points, and there's a whole bunch more to go, and I'll, see, I'll try to run all these, through these. But again, uh, for those listeners with pen and paper in hand, see what applies to you and just try to jot down what you need to do before December 31st. The, number, the third one was actually called risk planning. And this is where I, I'm seeing a, a lot of people, they, they've been told just defer your RSPs right until you can. If you don't need the money, defer till age 72, which is the first year you must take your RIF income. The age you turn 71, you have to convert it to a RIF, but you don't actually have to take an income until you're 72. Well, if you are not getting the pension credit, you're allowed to earn $2,000, as is your spouse, per year of RIF income after the age of 65. And that would qualify for this pension credit, which works up to $417 savings, each of you. Well, if you deferred it till 72, and I have come across a few people that just keep deferring, and they've been actually encouraged to do so, it works out that if you and your spouse did not get this credit, over, the, over those seven years, you would basically give up $5,838 because you didn't use that credit. 
and by deferring that RIF until you're age 72. So even if you don't need the money, what Andy and I often do is move a piece of the RSP simply to a RIF, and let's say we move you know, $30,000 or $40,000 of your RSP to a RIF, and just enough to pay the, the 2000 per year out of that, and then at age 72 we move the rest of the RSP. But definitely don't miss out on that. Another RIF planning tool is if you kept making RSP contributions to a spousal RSP, those attribution rules kick in. And they're a bit of a pain because a lot of people forget about them. It says, oh, I'll just have my, my spouse take the money out and he or she will pay the tax on it. Well, for example, if you took the money out of a spousal RSP this year, you would be, it would be attributed back to you if you made a contribution to a spousal RSP in 2018, 19, or 20. So you had to make sure your last contribution to a spousal RSP was 2017. Now, the exception to this is if you move your RSP, spousal RSP, to a, a spousal RIF, then you could start taking out the minimum. And the minimum is about 5% at age 70, as an example. And the minimum, which starts the following year, has no attribution rules. And it's a great way to pull funds out and add it to the lower-income spouse. So just a thought to make sure you're doing that. So, um, and again, this year, if you, are, if you were born in 1949, age 71 this year, you have to move your RSP to a RIF. Now, investment planning, capital gains. I know Andy spent a whole section last week on, on looking for those capital losses. So, again, definitely, if you have capital gains, try to find those offsetting losses this year, and that's a, a great way to do things. Also, you, you may want to, instead of having things that earn capital gains, consider using T-series where you're drawing down the capital, and therefore you, it may help you continue to get the old-age security. So, again, ask your financial planner about T-series. It makes a big difference. The other part of investment planning are those advisory fees. Every company has them somewhere. On non-registered investments, they are tax-deductible. So, for example, if your portfolio was a million dollars and there's a 1% advisory fee, that's a $10,000 that you'd be able to claim as a carrying charge on your tax return. Well, if you're in the highest tax bracket, that's about $5,000 in savings. I've had a number of people I've looked through their tax returns and they've missed this. Now, you can go back and go back three, four, five years and get those. But uh, I would recommend you definitely do because it really adds up. And I I had a a couple clients, actually. One was a client, one was a, a new person I met that hadn't claimed them. They're, they just weren't, weren't aware of it. So they did get a nice uh, surprise in the summer and they got a big check. Uh, our ESPs, December 31st is the deadline for a registered education savings plan. If your child is 15 this year and they do not have one, this is the year to do it because you cannot get one for them when they're 16 if they don't already have one when they're 15. And my, rec- my recommendation would be to put 5000 in this year 5000 when they're 16 and 5000 when they're 17 even if you had to borrow the money because if they are going to go to post secondary the government's going to give them $3000 and that's going to be way more than the interest cost you can't you can't beat a 20% guaranteed return so I definitely would recommend that now on the TFSA front the limit for from the start of this program is now $69500 so if you had funds, I, I've still come across a lot of people that still think a tax-free savings account is simply an, a savings account. And I, this actually happened in the past couple of weeks. So it should be called, as we, Andy and I have many times said, a tax-free investment account. 
And therefore, if we were to put money there, you would be able to earn your funds tax-free, and it would help limit your income. And if you're a senior, this also helps you make sure you don't get that old-age security clawback because you'll earn less interest and less dividends that are taxable, and these would now become tax-free. Now, if you pulled money out of your TSA in 2020, January 1st, you can put that all right back in. And you can still add your $6,000 contribution limit, which will be the new limit for 2021. And finally, if you're using TFSAs, what a great way to multiply them if you've got adult family members. So, you know, your, you and your spouse max out their TF, your, your TFSAs, but let's say uh, your kids are now 20 years old and they're not maxing them out. Well, you can put in 18, 19, and 20. That's three years worth of TFSA contributions, and a gift has no attribution rules if they're adults, and you let the, the funds grow tax-free in their TFSA. So lots of, lots of tips here. Um, finally, the only one I would go, last one, would be about donations. We're very close to the year end here. If you have shares that have gone up in value, look to moving the shares, not the cash. So an example, if you, had, if you bought something at 5000 and went to 10000 you could literally move those shares, and that would avoid the capital gain of $5,000. And therefore, you get the, the donation slip for 10000 and not pay an extra $1,250 in tax. So lots of little tips here and a good way to get to the year end of 2020 and start the 2021 with a fresh slate. We are planning our financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Quick break here. We're coming back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now, leave a message at 905-529-7165 and check out the website at andyanddon.com. Talking about a subject which is certainly dear to all of our hearts as uh, we look at each other on the little square box on our on our laptops or PCs or what have you, and that is the home office. That's going to be uh, interfering with a lot of uh, tax planning, I'm guessing, for this year. Absolutely. Well, uh, we had an update from the federal government on Monday the 30th, and uh, one of the points that they made was recognizing that more of us, if not all of them, the majority of us are working from home uh, like never before. And... Um, and I think that what uh, CRA was thinking about is if we have to deal with, you know, 6 million T2200s, which are the employment uh, form that has to be signed by your employer, which allows you to, uh, to offset some of your home office expenses, that it would be a nightmare trying to uh, process that many of these forms. So they uh, decided to just create a blanket access to a credit of $400, up to $400 for your uh, home office expenses without having to track any of it. You don't have to produce any uh, any document. You don't have to provide them any documentation at this point. But you still have to figure out how much of the $400 you are entitled to, and we'll talk a little bit about that in a second. But... Um, you know, I don't. You, you, that's the truth, right? We're all working from home, and uh, but it's funny they were talking about how you know. I was thinking to my wife. I said, I haven't been to the dry cleaner in like since this all started. I don't wear suit. I barely wear a suit or a shirt anymore. 
and uh, they were talking about how you know sales of uh, of track pants and top. Well, never mind bottoms. It's all tops. Everybody just has to buy a top. You don't need anything on the bottom. Maybe just your pajamas. Right? Even on the commercials <laughs> these days. That's right. <laughs> so, um, but obviously, you know, people as they've probably spent some things to upgrade either their computer systems or to be able to uh, the costs associated with working from home. Uh, whether it's your bedroom, your kitchen, your basement, uh, you know, turning it into an office, there's there's some economic expense to that, and they wanted to recognize it as well. So um, the amount of time that, that basically you're allowed to use this deduction if you are using your home office to a large extent to do just your home, your your work. And going through work is, the question is, how do you, how do you itemize or how do you keep track of all this? And and um, how they're going to calculate what portion that Canadians are entitled to of the 400. And there's one formula that's been used in Australia where they came up with a very similar tax uh, credit for their uh, citizens, and basically where they were allowing a certain amount per hour that you worked from home. So uh, an example in Australia is that you get 80 cents for every hour that you work from home, and this is one way of doing the calculation. So if the CRA were to use a similar approach, you'd basically have to work at home for 500 hours at 80 cents an hour to get uh, the full credit of $400. That works out to just around 12 weeks or three months, 12 weeks working from home or three months working from home. So most of us, if we're working from home, we probably fall into that category quite easily. So you get the $400, and if you haven't worked that much from home, then obviously you'd get a percentage thereof based on how many hours you've done. Um, but this, So this is what we call the simplified approach, but then there's the normal approach, which anybody who has been using a home office or maybe has more expenses as a result of a home office may want to use the normal approach where you itemize each of your deductions that you're entitled to claim, so that would be rent, your heat, your hydro, water, repairs or maintenance and supplies, and then you get to deduct a proportion of those based on a portion of those based on the proportion of your home that you use for work. And um, so there's probably a few people that stand to gain a lot more by going this sort of normal approach, and those would be people that uh, are renters. So let's take an example: if you're renting, uh, your rent is eighteen hundred dollars a month. And uh, now you may not have as many rooms, right? So if you're using, if you've got a four-bedroom, uh, four-room space that you're using, and you're using one of those rooms for your office, then you can deduct 25% of that for the last nine months. And um, so that works out to a $4,050 deduction, basically $1,800 times nine months times 25%. So that's way higher than the $400 amount. So. Most employees uh, who are renting and have to have a home office are going to be better off going the normal approach. So you do have to keep track of all those receipts and, and be able to provide those and, and make a ledger of what you've spent. Um, if you're a homeowner, uh, it's a little less advantageous because you can't deduct mortgage, mortgage interest uh, or property tax. Unless you're a commissioned employee, then you can add property taxes into that list as well. So the limits are a little bit different. Um, and, you know, so I think that uh, for everybody, taking advantage of this $400 credit is probably going to be an automatic. And then uh, for those who are look either renters or spending more in terms of their space allocation, 
They may be better to go through the normal approach. This might be a good time of year to maybe go and see a tax preparer in the in for 2020 uh, tax preparation, just to make sure that you've got the right uh, right option when it comes to your home office expenses. We have been planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call them now, leave a message. They will return your call at 905-529-7165. And check out their website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon, all one word, dot com. There you can ask a question via the listener inquiry button, as well as listen to old archive shows. Thank you, gentlemen. Great to see you again. Have a great week. Thank you. Thanks, Scott. Bye, everybody. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML.